Hello folks and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host Simon Ward and each week I'm joined by guests to share their knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. You may recall in my recent podcast with Patrick McEwen from the Oxygen Advantage, we chatted a little bit about nose breathing, something that I've been interested in for a while now. It first came to my attention when either listening to Phil Maffetone speak or in the Primal Endurance book written by Brad Cairns and Mark Sisson. Uh, I can't recall which one it was, but I've tried it on and off since then. Um, So today's guest is George Dallum, who's an exercise physiologist and a triathlon coach from Arizona. And George was recommended by Patrick because of his interest in nose breathing. So I'd recommend that you have a good listen today. And if you are minded and curious like me, please give it a try. You may find that it improves your health and performance. So let's crack on and hear from George. Well, welcome to the show, George Dallum. Uh, Nice to meet you, Simon. And uh, I'm happy to be here. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the High Performance Human Podcast. And today we're going to be speaking about your specialist subject, among others, which is nose breathing. Yes, I've been quite interested in that over maybe the last 12 to 14 years, something like that. So I first came across nose breathing, I think, when I was starting to get interested in the work of Phil Maffetone and his math principles of using 180 minus your age to provide the limit for heart rate for, for running and cycling, which is very challenging um, for a lot of people initially, as is nose breathing. And at the same time, I, I he made reference to nose breathing and the um, perhaps a reference that nose breathing might be another way of enforcing um, a sort of a slower um, intensity, a lower intensity when you were training. Um, then I, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, recorded a podcast with Patrick McEwen, who wrote the book, The Oxygen Advantage, and he spoke very highly of you. I think he may have mentioned your name in the podcast. And so here we are today um, with my sole purpose of being a little bit more educated about the whole process of nose breathing. So I guess my first question, George, is as an exercise physiologist, where did you start out? You know, what what was your interest that got you into exercise physiology? Um, and, and also um, a little bit about your sporting background as well, because I often find that exercise physiologists end up in that because they want to understand things that help them to get fitter. Uh, that's exactly right. So I'm a, you know, I'm a pretty typical model, I guess. Um, uh, uh, both my parents were teachers and coaches, my dad in wrestling, my mother primarily in swimming. And I uh, started year round swimming at six, as did all my brothers and sisters. And uh, I was the one who kind of stayed with it all the way through collegiately. By about 12, I had my first pneumonia. And that's a long sort of a explanation. But, you know, one of the things we understand about swimming is it creates some dysfunctional breathing. You have exposure, uh, exposure to chloramine gases. Um, in particular, during high school, when I was swimming in my mom's program, I swam in her program for two years. We had an indoor pool. She had a state-of-the-art curriculum, had more people in and out of the pool every day than really any place in the state. Or She's actually in the Hall of Fame in Pennsylvania for that. And uh, but she, we regularly have to open up the window, uh, open up the uh, the side panels of the pool to let airflow in to try to clear the chloramine gas because the old sand rate filter simply couldn't deal with the capacity, the numbers of people she had moving through the pool in training and in you know uh, Red Cross classes, etc. And so uh, you know I had all kinds of uh, upper respiratory problems as a result of that. 
at about uh, 14 or 15, just before I started swimming for her, she put uh, Doc Councilman's Science of Swimming in my hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, she understood that I was sort of questioning how we train, not not her at that point, but my other coaches and you know why we did certain things, right? Like the, the standard in swimming in those days was to swim repeat 100s on you know, a certain time interval, let's say you were, you know, an age group or swimming hundreds on the 130, right? And, you know, sustaining that as a primary staple of training. No concept mm-hmm. at all, by the way, of Maffetone's idea of, you know, steady swimming. That was almost unheard of, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I just questioned many of the ideas and particularly the main, my main questioning thing was, you know, why do we never swim as fast as we swim in meets in practice, which we rarely did until taper just didn't make sense from a specificity standpoint. So I got really interested in the, in understanding when I read councilman's book, I realized, Hey, there are people out there, right. Who are studying this scientifically, who are not coaches just replicating what they learned from their prior coaches, but who are actually studying it systematically that kind of, uh, you know, fed into a, a, a parallel pathway of being an athlete, all also coaching and teaching, which, you know, just came naturally from the, the, my parents kind of influence and uh, being a scientist, right? And so I've kind of been all of those things together, uh, which is still very unusual. Later on, let me uh, let me share a story about, um, I worked with Terry Dennison, who was one of the top swim coaches. Do you, do, you, do you ever come across Terry's name? Terry? Dennison. Dennison. No, I don't know Terry. He, what, what? he, he was at City of Leeds for 20, 30 years, was coached to Adrian Morehouse and um, uh, Nick, uh, actually it wasn't Nick Gilliam, James Parrott, James Hickman. So Terry had a huge influence. Leeds City were, were the top swim club in, in the United Kingdom for probably the, the 80s and 90s. But um, I, I, like you, asked Terry, why, why do swimmers who are swimming 100 metres, you know, um, swim 80K a week? And he said, ah, oh, but only 80, there's 80% of it's nice, easy training because we're not, humans aren't used to being in the water and we need to get that feel for the water. Um, and the rest of it is the stuff that, that, sort of adds to the race pace but I, I was never convinced by that answer um i'm still not now but anyway sort of it sort of ag- agrees with your statement there about being curious about the the mismatch between swim times uh, and durations and training volumes so i actually had a similar conversation with one of my professors at the u of a when i uh, this would have been in the 1980s dick jokums who at the time was considered the top distance swimming coach of all time Shaw, Furness, you know, multiple records across every distance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said to him one day, because Costell had produced this work suggesting that lower volumes and more intensity specificity was probably more beneficial, I think, in a D2 model program. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was at Ball State, a very famous physiologist, but also that applied guy, right? He also understood and was a real coach athlete kind of person. Sorry, who uh, was that? Was that Cost- David Costell? Uh, Dave Costell. So he, he was... Um... He wrote the physiology book with Wilmore, didn't he? Wilmore and Costa. Yes, he did. Which, right, yeah, okay. Wilmore was actually the lead professor at the U of A when I was there. Got you. Uh, in physiology. And so uh, I said to Dick, you know, you know, have you looked at this? You know, why do you keep doing what you're doing? And he, and he basically said, you know, I think you're probably right, George, but I have too much to lose. Right. In other words, they're, they're so vested in the model. Uh, that succeeded for them, that there's no way they're changing that, right? And that's just the mentality of, uh, of elite coaches quite often. Uh, it's a bad mentality because one of the things that really allows you to become an elite coach is your openness or your uh, inclusiveness, your willingness to take in new ideas mm. and then, you know, make them rational, you know, get evidence, see if that actually works. Of course, reject them if it doesn't, but if if they do work, continue to move forward, right? This is 
this is the uh, characteristic of elite coaches in my estimation that other coaches don't have. They tend to be more in- inclusive, protective, wanting to stay within the same. When I was questioning Terry about this sort of sort of obsession with volume that all the swim coaches um, seem to have both here and it seems like in the US as well, that he said that there, he, he did know of one female athlete, uh, swimmer and her coach who were tempted to give the high intensity, lower volume a try. But because this, because this female swimmer's main competitors were all doing big volume, she started to get cold feet. So while she was, while was she, while she was purportedly following a 25k a week um, program with lots of higher volume and more race pace stuff, she was secretly fitting in other sessions as well to build the volume up because she equally couldn't let go of that and felt like she had too much to lose if she tried another method and it didn't work. And so, um, yeah, there's a weight, there's a weight of history there that's resting on people's shoulders, isn't there? Uh, the secret training is funny, right? Because uh, uh, when I was coaching our resident program triathlon, when we first started our national team, you know, that was one of the issues is right. Secret training it was a training plan. And then it was always, well, so-and-so went out and I saw him doing this, or I saw her doing that. And I, uh, you know, that would basically create the scenario where the training program would be less successful than you would, you would hope because the secret training was impairing recovery, basically. Yeah. It's a, you know, the, the mentality of coaches and athletes working together, uh, it can be very complicated by lots of external factors. I know you've got an, an interest and in, and you've got experience with coaching elite athletes, and maybe we'll come on to this later. But I've always been interested in the the super high volume that triathletes want to put in as well. You know, thirty or forty hours we hear of for for some of the the top Ironman triathletes, and and I've had conversations with a, a, a an English friend of mine who's worked in the US, who you, you may have come across um, about when will somebody try to break that mold and realize that it is possible to win an Ironman on 20 hours a week and get more recovery. Um, but again, I just think any, most people are afraid to try and do something different. It's true. It's true. It's difficult to move away from something you've had success with. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, you were swimming, you got interested in exercise science. So I guess that meant that you were, um, it, it was a given that you were going to go and study that at university, right? Well, it wasn't actually giving, I'm, you know, uh, I'm kind of the classic, like I'm part of education, but I also recognize the weaknesses of education. I've experienced that, you know, teachers who are not committed or don't, aren't knowledgeable on top of all that sort of thing. And I don't want to downgrade education. I think education is a beautiful thing. It's really the democratizing influence of all societies in my mind. But, uh, you know, so I was not an enthusiastic student at all. I was mostly focused on my own athletics and learning on my own, right? Because I wasn't learning the things that were helpful to me and what I was me- most immediately interested in. And that's where, you know, finding resources like Councilman, right, who I had personal experience with as well. He he was involved in, I went to Mercersburg for a year, uh, which is a famous swimming school in, in Pennsylvania. They probably wouldn't like me calling it a swimming school, but it's, you know, well known for that. Uh, it's, a, it's a prep school. And, and Councilman worked with our coach at that time. And uh, my mom was also enamored of Councilman. He came to some of the clinics we did. So I, you know, that early model of uh, seeing that there was a, a more rational way to proceed, not just replicating belief because that's all the people believed and did. But, you know, actually examining, creating evidence, et cetera, that that was the way to proceed. I that, you know, that just encouraged me. But in going to school, I, I was not interested at all in school because I didn't even understand that anybody was studying that. I did finally figure that out uh, in my third year at Texas A&M. I came across and took an exercise science class and then made a complete switch. And once I found that and went transferred to the UA, that's another long story. 
uh, as a water polo player, uh, you know, then I became enamored of school, right? Then, you know, going to class was its own enjoyment for me because I was learning about things I was really interested in. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't always going to be the path, but it became the path. And it was always intertwined in my life, whether I was learning on my own or learning in a more formal setting. So at what point did triathlon enter your life then? So uh, I guess we're going to get into a bit of the long story. I was a good water polo player and pretty good swimmer, capable to play Division One and you know being all American and all that. Um, and my water polo program ended prematurely at A and M in a kind of a funny story, but a long story. And I went to the U of A, the University of Arizona, to play, and they ended their program as I got there. And so I was kind of left in a vacuum. That was in nineteen. I started there in January of nineteen eighty. And, you know, I kind of needed that physical activity, right? And I didn't have it. So I uh, kind of migrated into cycling right away. That was relatively easy for me to, to be successful in. I, you know, what I, the talents that made me a pretty good swimmer, water polo player translated pretty easily. And within about a year, I think it was in 1981, my roommate, who has his own sort of weird place in triathlon, he started active.com, Jim Woodman. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're watching uh, Wide World of Sports and we're watching Dave win this this race, this crazy race by like two hours. And I'm thinking, Dave, he's a D2 water polo player. I can do that. <laughs> and so both of us have that sort of mentality. Jim denies the story. Uh, and so, you know, that year I entered the Ironman uh, and started, you know, thinking about triathlon, even though there were no triathlons really in Arizona at that time. But by the end of 1981, the first triathlon appeared there. I did that and I just kept going. I found that that was the thing that fit, right? It it gave me a model for studying about exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, It allowed me to be outside, which I always loved. It's one of the reasons I went to the West away from Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, it was all encompassing because you're dealing with three different sports and, you know, weight training and all the pieces that we're interested in as exercise physiologists are there in in triathlon, it's like the perfect model. So you, that was for those people who are listening that that don't understand the evolution of Ironman, you know, in a way that in the early days, you could actually just fill in a form and enter the race, couldn't you? There were no qualifications. So right. did, was that 81 or 82 you entered? I, I entered in 81 and 82, both times, you know, I had never really done any running, right? Any significant amount of running. So both times I kind of got injured and I thought, I'm not asking my parents to send me over to Hawaii it's, you know, I mean, my parents were both teachers and had four kids that went to college, right? We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, I'm not asking my parents to send me over to Hawaii just to not finish. So I didn't ever go, but I was entered officially in both 81 and eight and the 81 and 82 versions of the race. And one of those years is when it switched, I think to. Yeah. 82, it switched. They did February in, um, on uh, Oahu. And then in, in the October, they went to the big Island for the first time, didn't they? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, so you've not actually done Hawaii then, or did you get to do it later? Never done an Ironman. The longest, oh, okay. race, I ever did, the longest race I ever did was one of the early 80 races back in the east uh, on the Maryland shore in the Maryland Bay, where we swam like two miles. Fletcher Hanks, one of his races, we rode, uh, we ran like 20 miles and we and rode 50. I've never, I'm inclined to shorter, mm. I'm faster, right? So as soon as sprint and you know, Olympic distance racing started to evolve, I immediately migrated to that. And the shorter, the better. If, in my mind, if we could go over to Memorial Park here in Colorado Springs and use the velodrome and, you know, the pool and basically have a, a true sprint race, you know, maybe like a, a quarter mile run, kilometer on the bike, that sort of thing. That's what I would probably best at. You, you and I, I, I don't think it was the wide world of sports in, in, the, in, in 1981 or 1980 you were watching, but it was the 1982 edition with Julie Moss 
crawling to the finish that um, I remember. And uh, that was what got me interested in triathlon. But it wasn't until for another five years that I did my first one. Um, but when I when I got my legacy spot in Kona in 2017, I met Julie and I met Dave. And um, previous to that, I'd met um, I'd met some of the guys that were there at the original one in 1978 as well, which was fantastic. Um, just chatting with them about being such intrepid and adventurers, you know. Because I mean, that nobody really. Yeah, that was nobody, amazing at the time how it how it was right. It was so different than how it is now. You were really in a complete adventure with no idea what was going to happen. Yeah, and you yeah. know, riding some ten speed oftentimes that you just had in your garage or something that you rode to school. Well, you listen to um, you probably know Bob Babbitt, and he's told me his story many times about that first thing when he's on his cruiser and his trainers and he's got his basket all loaded up with his stuff and. Yeah, just he didn't know what he was letting himself in for. Um, Jimmy and Bob I have, know each other because Jim sold one of his publications to Bob. Uh, he created something called Active, but I've never, I've never met Bob. I'm well aware of him, but I've never met. Him. Mm, yeah, well, I like talking. You like talking. Bob likes talking. That will be. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and we never get to the topic. <laughs> no. So, um, at what point did nose breathing start to? Um, sort of come onto your radar and sort of become more of an interest for you? So I alluded to the fact that uh, when I was swimming, one of the problems was always getting sick a lot, upper respiratory mm-hmm. stuff. In, in the early days, uh, what we'd call bronchitis and moving to pneumonia. At 12, I actually was diagnosed with pneumonia, which, you know, back in this, this would have been in the uh, uh, early 70s, late 60s. Back in those days, pneumonia was considered really serious. The walking pneumonia concept was just emerging. And so they made me stay home for like four weeks, even though I was like a 12 year old. Right. So mm-hmm. completely inactive, staying at home, built model railroads, watched Star Trek, I believe, on television. Right. Uh, and so I went back to school and, you know, uh, normally would do the track and field day, even though I wasn't a runner, normally do really well in the longer thing because I was trained. Right. I wasn't trained in running. But anyways, uh, I just I just was destroyed. Right. I, I like felt horrible. And I remember, you know, that galvanized my mind. I don't want to be sick like that. I never want to be inactive. But that, you know, that um, uh, followed me really all the way until maybe 15 years ago, where frequent upper respiratory infection was always a problem. Um, I'm home one day from school. Um, now I'm teaching, you know, where I where I where I am now about 15 years ago. Uh, I have an, a sinus infection, which those became more prevalent once I started living in altitude. And my mind sort of expanded to the idea of I need to look outside of the traditional, you know, stuff. Like stop talking to physicians, et cetera. Look to see what's out there on the internet. Came across the idea of nasal breathing, um, coupled with the idea of barefoot running, which I was already already hmm. a pretty big ad- I was an early advocate of pose method thought process around running and right. moving to the lightest shoes possible and or wearing no shoes. Uh, and so uh, you know, it made sense to me. I started trying it. Uh, it was a struggle. But over time, I adapted, saw that my health improved dramatically, saw that um, uh, my performance actually got a little bit better, even though I'm at that point 48 years old, right? So, you know, and I've been doing this at that point, like 30 years, and uh, getting better is not a thing that's on the radar anymore. You you could understand what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you get better all of a sudden after all that, that says something to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I have to mention that I the other thing I found on the internet that day, which I had not been aware of, wasn't on my radar at all, was the idea of using what we call sinus irrigation sciences, but basically using a neti pot, right? And using it daily, not using it when you get sick, but using it as a daily preventative technique. So I started doing both those things 
I was just looking at some notes I took from the time because I was trying to study what I was doing in myself as a case study. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so I started doing that in 2005, in the late part of 2005. And somewhere later in 2006, I considered I was fully adapted. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the first and most immediate result of that was I just stopped getting sick, right? I, I literally went four or five, six years before the next thing that I could identify in any way is being sick. You know, sinus infection, cold, uh, bronchitis, pneumonia, anything that I could identify as being sick occurred. I, I still almost never get sick anymore. And I hate to say that, right? Because you're, you know, you're asking for it when you say that I have that sort of belief, but, mm-hmm. um, but th- that's the reality. I just hardly ever get any sickness anymore. So I have been using a neti pot daily for okay. the last can you, can it is, 15 years. For, for anyone who's not aware of what that is, then could you just explain the process? Yes, I could. So a neti pot is the idea of using saline, which just means water with a bit of salt in it. We, uh, you know, you use salt because salt is antimicrobial, right? It will actually like come in contact with, say, viruses or bacteria that might be in your nasal cavity and will, through contact, actually invalidate those viruses. But there's also the mechanical idea of simply washing that mucus out. So this is where you have to understand a bit of physiology and why I've written the book, right? Is, you know, you have to understand your body a little bit to understand why these mechanisms work and how they work. So, you know, of course, we protect ourselves from disease primarily by inhaling through our nose. Um, That air is filtered through the mucus uh, in our nasal cavity uh, through turbulence. And uh, consequently, things like viruses and bacteria absorb in that mucus, right? Uh, viruses in particular will try to invest themselves in the goblet cells. This is, for instance, how COVID works, and then start to reproduce. But it takes several days for that to happen. So if you're regularly cleaning that mucus out mechanically by simply washing it out with water, uh, an eddy pot, you just drain through your nose. It's like a little teapot. You hold it above your nose in one nostril and drain it out to the other into your sink. And then you do the same thing in the other direction. Okay. So the combination of a bit of salt, or there are some other substances that can work equally as well, uh, with that that mechanical action of water actually draining that mucus out, uh, allows you to inhibit those infections from ever getting started. Um, Neti pots are really problematic, just like nasal breathing up front, if you don't understand some basic physiology, which is why it's so important to get that across. In the case of a neti pot, if you start to use those, while you're sick and you already have a huge amount of congestion, you can barely get that water to go through and it wants to go down your throat and you're going to be like, I'm never doing that again, right? It was miserable. <laughs> Even if you're healthy uh, and you start to use an antipod, oftentimes the dried up mucus that you have in your sinuses, the, the buildup of mucus is way beyond what people understand and it becomes very clogged uh, and it's very difficult. But over a week or two of consistent use, you can normally clear that. And then, you know, Fairly quickly, it becomes this easy eight or 10 second, you know, flow through Uh, and then eight or 10 seconds in the other way. And, you know, it's a minute or two of your day. Right. And it dramatically then impacts your health. What's the science on this? Well, uh, neti pots have mostly been studied or sinus irrigation, sinus rinsing, sinus flushing. Uh, It's mostly been studied in the context of disease, meaning that people have expressed uh, respiratory disease. At that point, that means that the virus has already integrated itself into your your system. And so at that point, a neti pot is minimally effective. It mostly helps to do with symptoms, right? Help you clear your nose, that sort of thing. But it doesn't really change the course of disease too dramatically. It might shorten it a bit, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Very limited science has actually looked at it as preventative of using it like every day so that you don't get those infections in the first place. And that science is universally supportive. There's one minor exception. 
uh, which is some bad science that never actually got published, but got caught a lot of media attention. It wasn't published because it was so badly done. Uh, you know, so what, what's there suggests that if you use neti pots regularly, that you greatly reduce the rate of upper respiratory infection that, that occurred. That's basically what my experience was. In a person who's going to breathe nasally, who adopts that for things that I hope we'll get to talk about today, um, doing this might be very critical because you're going to greatly overload the filtering mechanism of your nose through the high ventilation barrier. You're going to attempt to move through it by exercising this way. So regularly cleaning it would be this analogous to making sure you're running your filters when you have a lot of kids in the pool, right? So that you're you're dealing with the fact that they're going to tend to change the nature of that water unless you regularly filter it. So a neti pot to me is integral to adapting to the idea of breathing nasally. Okay, well, we will, I'll, I'll ask you at the end for uh, uh, some links to that and we'll put some um uh, we'll put some of those in the show notes so people who are interested can investigate that. And maybe if you can share some of the the research that you just alluded to, we'll we'll sure. put a couple of the put a couple of the papers up. So you mentioned that you oh you, let's talk about barefoot running for a moment. And you, uh, you did ask me previously in an email if I've met um, Nick Romanov and um, his UK um, okay Graham Fletcher was it. Graham Fletcher, right? Was yeah, the I did. researcher who worked with us at the time and actually yeah. helped me with coaching when we started the national team. Nick, Nick, and, Nick and Graham came to deliver a presentation uh, for British Triathlon because I was uh, part of the Talent ID program back in the early 2000s. And they came to do a presentation on pose running. Uh, I was quite interested at the time. Um, I, I then got, um, like most people, I read the book on um, uh, barefoot running by, uh, is it McDougall? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, born to uh, run. Yeah, born to run. That's right. Um, I bought myself a pair of Vibram five fingers. I never did any running in them, but I did use them to strengthen my feet, and they were integral in helping me to wean myself off uh, orthotics, which I I do to this day. Not use those. Um, so yeah, that's that's a whole interesting other debate, isn't it? Barefoot running and uh, pose running. Maybe we can return to that in another podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. But, uh, but you, I actually you, did the seminal research on that with Nicholas. Oh, okay. Okay. So a study that's been widely misinterpreted and widely used as evidence of why you shouldn't do it, when in fact that's not yeah. really the case. There's um there's an interesting um Ross Tucker from Sports Science, Sporting Science, I can't sports scientists, can't remember he's the name. He's the main guy who Yeah, he's the main guy, but he 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 shared about six six articles that he wrote about um, barefoot running and running technique, which had uh, Daniel, N- Daniel Nga, is it? NG? Um, D- uh, Lieb- I'm, yeah, sort Lieb- of familiar with him. Yeah. Lieberman um, himself. I don't know if Nick Romanov was there, but there was about five or six researchers who were talking about barefoot running and running technique. And he, he, he was at, um, he was at a conference and then a round table where it was all discussed and got a bit heated and he shared all of this stuff and the pluses and minuses and the caveats and the things that people overlook. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure if there was any conclusions out of it really, but it was an interesting read. I'll, I'll, I, I summarized it all. I'll, I'll send it across to you to read. Um, Absolutely. But that again, in all things, it's complicated, right? So it, there's, uh, there's aspects of it, and this is true of nasal breathing. If you don't understand what you're doing, yes, and you make the, the classic mistakes that people make, it will go wrong for you. And that's true with uh, the idea of changing towards a pose well, mechanic or barefoot running. And and I guess that is something. If we if we loop back to nasal breathing now, that we should perhaps emphasize is if you want to, 
if you want to become a barefoot runner, it's probably going to take you at least six months, probably more of a year if you're patient and you have to go backwards before you can go forwards, don't you? Um, yes. And I guess it's the same with nasal breathing. You can't just do it twice, um, complain that your nostrils get full of snot and it's and you're having to run slower and give up because you need to break through that and then just keep advancing. But you're probably going to have to take a, a bit of a hit to the ego in your running paces first and what people see on Strava. I, I will say this that um, you won't take a, a hit in terms of how fast you can run, but you'll take a hit in terms of how long you can expect to be able to run in that condition. You can't reasonably expect to go out and run in bare feet or even using post-method mechanics if you've been a dramatic overstrider uh, without overloading your musculoskeletal system. Mm. But in terms of being able to run faster, the vast majority of people, if they simply take their shoes off, will run faster, right? If you just yeah. take them out to a field and say, let's time you for 100 running. I actually did a little study like this at, in, in a class study that we don't we don't publish those. But, you know, uh, if we simply take our shoes off, the majority of us will run faster simply from that. Alter and an alteration of mechanics will occur, right? You will alter your mechanics towards the pose model, right? A, a relatively quicker uh, stride rate, a uh, relatively shorter uh, um, stride length and higher stride frequency. Yeah. And I think Maffetone's done a paper on that where he talked about getting under the two-hour barrier and said that, you know, if they just got rid of running shoes, they'd be there because the, <laughs> yes. the, the extra weight of those is probably equivalent to slowing down by two minutes. But of course, if you're not used to running in them, you'll end up with broken metatarsals before you break the world record. So um, that's largely true until the advent of the shoe that's actually adding a bit of cantilevering force oh. uh, that might actually be a multiplier on the um, yeah. small multiplier, but still a significant multiplier on the you know, the energy return or elastic elements of how we engage the ground and then and then propel ourselves from it. There's a whole nother rabbit hole that we could go down. Yeah, that's that is another rabbit hole. That well, was pretty definitive though, right? It's you, know, you can't really argue that those shoes are allowing people to run fast. Well, uh, my last podcast guest was a, an exercise physiologist who works with pro cyclists, but he was talking about big data and the study that New York Times did on all the yep. Strava data that would pretty much prove that people were running three to four percent faster when they were wearing vapor flies and i hesitate to use the word prove and now we'll get into a scientist view of this right yeah. around descriptive data you can't prove anything with descriptive data you can find out what the questions are you really only prove causation with with uh, controlled experimentation right but mm. you know that's a thing that's lost on most people in science um but it's really important right because we jump to these these causative mm. conclusions all the time from comparing existing groups and you just can't do that well, thank you for correcting Even me on that. Even some scientists do that. And you're, you're like, did you take your stats class? Thanks for correcting me. I'm not a scientist with no research background, so I uh, needed pulling back into my place there. Um, oh, I, I didn't mean to do that. I'm no, just, no, no, I'm, no, no. I'm, I'm absolutely saying thank you. I didn't I didn't mean it in a condescending way. I absolutely thank you for uh, just, just making me you know, maybe look at both sides um, and maybe some of the listeners too. So let's... I think the conclusion you, you drew and that he drew is probably correct. All I'm saying is we can't say that there's no. a cause there yet. No. We can now say maybe there's a cause. We ought to investigate it experimentally. Mm. Well, let's go, let's go back to nose breathing then. So you, you've alluded to the fact that you're in the middle of writing this book. You were kind enough to share um, with me some of the initial workings. And so what I thought was the best way to work through this whole subject of nasal breathing was to just go through the chapters that you've outlined in your book. So, Right at the very start, you refer to watching the video of David Rudisha, his world record breaking 800 meter gold in, in London, wasn't it? 2012. Yes. And 
observing from the videos that he was nose breathing throughout. So um, firstly, that that was extremely surprising to me that one could run at a world record pace um, for just under two minutes, breathing entirely through the nose. So um, explain to me what piqued your interest about that and what the mechanics are behind it. And then we'll move on to the underpinning physiology from uh, about breathing and see well, if we can... What, what got me interested in that, of course, I was already interested in nasal breathing because I was had been doing this myself and had been seen some performance improvement at a point in my career when I should not have seen that. Hmm. Uh, what, what got me interested in, in this was the fact that it was so obvious, right, that he literally, you know, has his mouth almost forcefully closed throughout. And yet that's considered to be one of the best performances in track and field history, you know, maybe Beeman, right, mm-hmm. comparable to that. Uh, and, uh, and he was very consistent in doing it. He actually set that world record four times over, I think two years or something like that. And was mm-hmm. consistently breathing this way. So, you know, it, it, it illustrates the, the most common fallacy that exists around this, which is the idea that, and, and it's really why the name of my book is nasal breathing paradox, the paradoxical relationship between the, the idea that we can ventilate more when we open our mouth. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily oxygenate us more, right? We don't necessarily improve our ability to perform work by ventilating more because, you know, we perform work as a function of getting oxygen into the muscle cell. And when we ventilate more than is actually optimal, we inhibit to some degree the ability to, to uh, carry oxygen to the cell. We could get into each step of that in detail if you like, but um uh, so that assumption maybe is wrong, right? Uh, paradoxically, we might actually be able to perform better by ventilating slightly less and using what's clearly our natural uh, route for ventilation, which is through the nasal passage. Mm. However, uh, that's fraught with change or the need for change because most of us, nearly all of us, breathe orally. We've learned to do that, right? Whether we learn that behaviorally uh, or we learn to do that intellectually. I think we learn it behaviorally, uh, you know, what we would call uh, operant. It becomes operant behavior for us. Uh, you know, it's a common belief system that we have to breathe that way. That, that whole point about David Radisha was the reason it was so surprising to me was because my initial understanding of nose breathing was that it was an excellent way to force yourself to slow down because you just couldn't get the oxygen in to run fast. And so to read that was again, like you say, it's a paradox. Uh, it, it is initially, right? If you yeah. if you're accustomed, if you're adapted to, na- to oral breathing, you will have to slow down to breathe nasally because of some basic physiology, and it's mm. important to understand that physiology and know that that will happen. Okay, so um, in a in a way that all of our listeners will understand easily, is it <laughs> is it possible for you to explain that physiology? I could. Uh, so. You know, we talk about ventilation, it's just how much air we move, right? We, we express in science as minute ventilation, how much air we move per minute. So we have these concepts called hyper and hypoventilation. Hyper means when we're breathing more than we really need to, or mm-hmm. that we, or that's normal is really more classically the scientific definition. Uh, and hypo is when we're breathing less. So one of the things that happens when we hyperventilate, when we breathe more than we really need to, uh, is because of the uh, way that oxygen and CO2 diffuse across the lung. We tend to still be able to maintain oxygenation, even when we're breathing more than we need to, but we tend to diminish um, uh, CO2 in the blood. We, we, we favor CO2 moving into the lung over O2 moving out in the condition of hyperventilation. So what ends up happening then is we have this lower level of CO2 in the blood, right? 
So CO2 is pretty powerful, right? Most people consider it's a waste gas. It, it's, it's a waste gas because we produce it and to stay in homeostasis, it will continue to rise unless we move it out of the body. So we have to stay in homeostasis, but it plays very important regulatory functions. You know, one of the really important regulatory functions is it causes our blood vessels to dilate, right? So in the presence of CO2, our, bl our blood vessels expand a bit. Uh, also, it helps oxygen to download from hemoglobin. They compete for their positions on that protein. Mm -hmm. um, you know, real simplistically in my class, the way I would teach the idea of the proteins in the blood is that gases don't diffuse in the liquid. We all know that. We've all opened a soda can, right? We force CO2 into that soda can under pressure, but as soon as we take that pressure off, it comes out, right? That's what the bubbles are. That's just CO2 trying to leave the, their condition of being saturated in the water because gases don't diffuse in the water well. So to carry these gases in our blood, they have to attach to this protein, hemoglobin. And the competition between those gases is important to how the hemoglobin molecule works, right? So CO2, when it starts to be in low levels, tends to cause vasoconstriction, tends to inhibit the ability of oxygen to release from, from hemoglobin, tends to not favor the ability of oxygen to get into the cell, basically, through less blood flow and also through less easy release from hemoglobin to keep it very simple. So the net effect is that um, we actually probably in, expose more oxygen to the blood when we hyperventilate, but we also limit its ability to then get down into the cell. The net effect is we pretty much oxygenate about the same way, whether we hyperventilate a little bit, hypoventilate a little bit, or ventilate normally. But we dramatically tend to change CO2. When we hypoventilate, when we're breathing less than is normal for us, right? CO2 tends to rise because the conditions of slower breathing and ventilating less generally favor CO2 not getting out as well as O2 comes in. And then CO2 tends to rise in the arterial blood. And then the opposite happens. We tend to get some vasodilation. We tend to get better release of oxygen down at the cell. And so, you know, in, in a condition of hypoventilation, we can also get enough oxygen into the cell and we shift the whole process a bit. There's a little less going into the blood, but it releases a little more easily and has better blood flow. Yeah. So let me see if I'm understanding this right. If we breathe orally, we're actually breathing in more oxygen than we might need based on what you're saying about nasal breathing. Not more oxygen, more air. More That's air. A critically important difference, right? Okay. More air. Ventilation refers just to air, not to oxygen, to air. Okay. And does that mean then that the air we're getting in, we're just using inefficiently, which is That's why. That's a way to think about it. Which is why we can actually do just as well nasal breathing. Yes. It means that um, we're doing a lot of extra work of breathing. And this is, this is the really key part about understanding how nasal breathing might actually help you perform better. To, to, to get that same level of oxygenation, let, let's dis dispel that myth, right? People sort of have implied that somehow when you breathe nasally or orally that you're increasing oxygenation of the cell, you're probably not increasing oxygenation of your muscles in either condition, right? Whether you're slightly hyperventilating or slightly hypoventilating, what you're changing is the CO2 conditions of your blood, right? Mm -hmm. And that's important because that's the main driver of how you sense what's happening. Uh, and so when we breathe um, uh, in a, in a uh, oral way, we have to ventilate more to get that same oxygenation. Ventilation requires work, right? When you're running a 5K in 20 minutes, let's say, you know, probably 15% of your energy is going just to you breathing, right? That's a substantial okay. amount of energy. The diaphragm, the intercostals, the abdominal muscles, the chest muscles, all of those are working hard just to create the air movement in and out of your lung. And so that's a substantial amount of energy. So, so, so that becomes wasteful when we... 
when we so, hyperventilate. So we're actually, if we're all, well, we're actually breathing hard to help us breathe hard in some way. Is that right? You could argue that. Uh, and you know, we can get into the subtleties of this. It redirects blood flow, um, uh, yeah. et cetera. So there's a lot of implications scientifically, but basically it's just energy that we don't need to expand. And so if we don't need to expand that energy because we found a more efficient way of breathing, we therefore don't need to supply as much oxygen to those working muscles. So if it's not going to the ventilation muscles, is it going to the working muscles, the other working muscles like the legs or the arms? Uh, that's where I'm going to, you know, again, this gets a bit complicated. In either condition, we're probably supplying the same <clears throat> amount of oxygen to the working muscles. Okay. What happens when we don't have to ventilate as much is we don't have to supply as much energy to those muscles, right? Again, they're also working muscles. This is the part that people struggle mm -hmm. in getting, you know, uh, we don't run or ride a bike simply by using the big muscles, in our legs and our hips. We also have to use those ventilatory muscles to breathe to support it. And if, and if we don't have to do that as much, that means there's less energy going to that. We essentially produce the same external work, but we use less energy. So what are the implications of that? Well, the first obvious one is you might be able to then go a little faster, right? You might be able to run 5K in 1930 instead of 20 minutes. Um, the other obvious implication for people interested in Ironman and longer travel, longer. you're using less energy. At the same pace, you're using less energy. And we all know, you know, one of the real limitations practically for doing the Ironman is getting enough energy in your body to just get to the end, right? Uh, and so if we can actually learn to, to move forward in a way where we use less energy, we're likely right away going to improve our ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Right, maybe allow us to go a little faster, or maybe go at the same pace and and be more uh, resistant to not getting enough energy because we, you know, we missed a, a glucose bottle or something like that. Okay, so then the next uh, you've sort of started to differentiate between um, oral and nasal breathing. It, it seems to me then that if we if most of us habitually breathe through our mouth, we haven't got the same filtration process that we have in our nasal passages for all of the other things that might be in the atmosphere when we're running, when we're walking through the city, um, et cetera. So is that exposing us to um, health issues as well? Um, when we're not, even when we're not exercising. I'm going to apologize here, Simon. And let me just jump back to that CO2 thing. This okay. is the most important thing to understand. Yep. Hyperventilation, low CO2. We get accustomed to that CO2. And this is, Definitive, right? CO2 is the primary driver of our sense of airlessness and our respiratory drive. Uh, and so, you know, good experimental science is science. We've known this for more than 50 years. When our CO2 levels are lower than normal, we become more sensitive to it, right? We respond to it at lower levels. That's how the body's receptors work. They up and down regulate for what's normal. When it's higher, all of a sudden, right? When all of a sudden you experience a higher level of CO2 than you're used to in your blood, you sense that as air hunger, right? Or dyspnea, if we're talking about it clinically, you get this sense of not getting enough air. So when you make that shift, if you move from a slightly hyperventilated state, ventilating more than normal to a slightly lower, maybe slight hypoventilation state, you'll get a higher level of CO2 in your blood. Um, our research is not showing that definitively, it's showing it somewhat indirectly, uh, and you'll experience air hunger. But here's the thing, it will go away, right? If you just keep exposing yourself to this, it goes away. So why is this so important? You know, the first thing that anybody wants to do when they hear me talk or they hear uh, Patrick talk or they hear anybody talk about the straws, they go, you know, I'm going to go out and run. I'm going to try to breathe my nose, right? So, you know, you, you, let's say you're typically going to get on a treadmill and you're going to run at an eight-minute pace, right? 
So you go out and you try to do that breathing in your nose and you feel this air hunger. It might be really severe. It might be mild, but it tells you this isn't working. I can't do this. And you're rational when you, when you come to that conclusion, because you didn't understand that it isn't that you're not oxygenating your cells adequately. You may or may not be depending on how, you know, how much difficulty you have adjusting to this, but that you're definitely going to experience this as a bit of air hunger. So you may have to slow to find the point where that's acceptable, right? And then over time, it will go away. And before you know it, you'll be back to where you where you were, mm-hmm. right? And once you get back to where you were, you're now probably able to perform that same work, breathing less, more economically, meaning less energy use and less oxygen consumption overall. And that's when it becomes advantageous. But you have to go, every one of us, if we breathe orally, and almost nobody breathes nasally, right? During exercise, every one of us will have to find that point where we start to hypoventilate significantly enough to feel air hunger. And we'll have to, to sort of move past that gradually. And if we try to move past it too fast, which is the first thing that everyone does, you know, right away, we get this hugely negative experience and in, in behavior. When you have an initially punishing experience, humans just don't go back to that, mm. right? We just don't do that behaviorally. So uh, it's key that you don't have that initially punishing experience. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. There. No, 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 so no, important. no, that's fine. That's fine. This is a learning experience for me completely. And you, it sounds like you were actually watching when I tried nose breathing for the first time, because what you described <laughs> was exactly what I went through. And uh, although it was more like eight minutes per kilometer for me, not eight minutes per mile. Um, but uh, one of the other things I noticed is that my nasal passages get just uh, running. They get clogged up with snot. They sort of, because there's snot in there, they stick together. So that makes it more difficult. Um, is that something I've just got to go through or can I wear nasal strips to help open my nasal passages and make that a little bit easier? When you initially expose yourself to that volume of air, which contains contaminants, et cetera, with the, the thing you were getting to next about pollution, uh, you know, you're, you're, body's basic protective response is to produce more mucus. And so initially that's a new thing for your nasal cavity. It's going to produce a lot of mucus for, for a long time. I used to carry, you know, we call it do rag. I don't know if you use that term, but you know, something to blow my nose. in when I was training indoors, because it'd be, I always consider it was like offensive to everybody. My nose was running so much and something to blow, but over time that subsided. Um, Two things really can help with that. One is initially maybe to use one of those nasal dilator strips, which you know, when you get mucus in there, if you can keep your nasal passage open a little bit more, it still makes it easier to breathe. Mm-hmm. It's less that, like the overwhelming. That, you feel like you've blocked your nasal passage. Yeah, that's and what the I other thing is the yeah. neti pot, right? You want to keep cleaning that out because that, you know, uh, I, I think people don't realize this, but when we overproduce mucus, much of that backflows into the sinus and we start to build up a, a reservoir of mucus in the sinus. And this is where sinus infections start to occur and other mm-hmm. forms of sinusitis, et cetera. Uh, and so we want to just keep cleaning that out. And then over time it does diminish. And, you know, now I never even think about that. Right. I, I never get an excessive mucus because my nasal cavity after 15 years of doing this is, is, you know, completely adjusted to it. Um, you could look at that as a downside from the, the immediate perspective of, wow, it makes it hard for me to breathe, but it shows you how your nasal passage is protective, right? That, that mucus production is your main vehicle for, for protect protecting and 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 your system will get accustomed to it in a way it's analogous to the idea that you would spend your whole life in shoes and then expect to be able to run barefoot even in a year right to do the same level of work it's just idiotic almost to think of that right mm-hmm. uh, your body is not in any way prepared for that because it hasn't done that before 
if you've never breathed at a high rate, you know, through your nose over time, it's going to take your, your system a while to adapt to that, to adjust and find the right level of mucus production that's necessary. But dilator strip and, and regular use of neti pot definitely help with that. Okay. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about health then, because we mentioned at the beginning, you know, we, we're all about health span, particularly older athletes, you know, keeping them healthy so they can train regularly and train consistently. So, um, I think Patrick McEwen says, if you, if I was a vet and I saw an animal breathing through its mouth, I'd want to see what was wrong with it because animals don't breathe through their mouths. And, but yet, as you mentioned, you see a lot of humans who are just habitual mouth breathers. So what are the downsides and costs to our health of habitually breathing through the mouth? Well, the reason that people suggest that the mouth is reading the nose is for breathing is because all of the conditioning apparatus uh, for air is really in the nasal cavity. You know, it isn't like your oral passages without some protection, right? We, we produce mucus throughout the epithelial cells and the whole respiratory tract. But, you know, we do a very efficient job in the nose of slowing airflow down as it hits these turbinate structures in our nose, which creates, which creates some um, turbulence, right? And, and hence the name turbinance. Uh, and, and it allows that air to mix with mucus. And so that mucus does two big things. It filters stuff out, right? By mixing with the mucus, particulate matter, smoke, you might think of that as, you know, things that are visible to you that you can see in the air, gas, some gases, uh, viruses and pathogens, they all get filtered out. So that gives the, the nasal passage then an opportunity to do something with that mucus. Now, the majority of mucus in the nasal passage uh, flows downwards and is actually swallowed. Uh, uh, by the action of the cilia, the, the, the membranes of the sinus cavity and the nasal passage of cilia that essentially move that mucus so that we can swallow it in our stomach. Of course, our stomach has strong acids. It can kill most of that. Mm-hmm. So we avoid all of those potentially damaging materials from reaching the lung by breathing nasally. Um, the second thing that happens in the nasal cavity, uh, you know, all epithelial tissues release uh, a bit of what's called nitric oxide. But the nasal capacity is specialized to that and releases higher levels of nitric oxide. By the way, that's been demonstrated in experimentally during exercise as well, that we release more nitric oxide into, into nasally breathed air. Uh, and so nitric oxide, uh, if you're interested in science at all, I think it was in the maybe in the 90s, the Nobel Prize was awarded in physiology to three gentlemen who really uh, identified all of the various things that nitric oxide does in the body. To, to the degree that it's been called the most powerful signaling agent in the body. So the two big ones that are of most interest, and there's a multitude of things that nitric oxide does, are that it's a powerful vasodilator, even more so than CO2. Uh, and secondly, that it's antimicrobial, right? That it also will kill or invalidate viruses, you know, organic materials that get in our nose that are we call pathogens, right? And so by uh, having this air swirl mixed with mucus, we're able to kill these pathogens that enter. Um, in fact, uh, you know, uh, nitric oxide has been one of the theorized ways that we might address COVID as a classic example. COVID is really nothing more than a yet another virus with you know greater transmissibility, et cetera, than we've uh, we've dealt with our in our entire span of human existence. So by doing this, we greatly limit the body's general exposure to these pathogens, to particulate matter. Um, to things that might damage the lung. The implications of that go to almost across the spectrum in terms of disease, right? So for instance, uh, in, in athletes, one of the things we see is a huge epidemic level 
of what's called EIB, exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. You know, 30 years ago, we called this basically exercise-induced asthma. The idea that, you know, simply by ventilating and breathing through your mouth, um, that you actually induce this asthmatic response, this bronchoconstriction. So another piece of what the uh, of what the nasal cavity does in bringing that air into close association with the epithelial tissues and the mucus is it allows it to add water and to add air. You know, the most common air we would breathe is colder than our body temperature and would typically be drier than fully saturated with water. So that means the air is also humidified and warm to body temperature when it reaches the lung, even aside from all these other things, viruses, pathogens, uh, uh, other pathogens, uh, and, uh, and particulate matter, gases. Even aside from that, simply cold, dry air hitting the lung is damaging to the epithelial tissues. And so then the epithelial tissues eventually stimulate a response if we continue to batter them that way. Uh, initially, we just cough to try to remove you know, materials that are damaged through dehydrating the, uh, the alveoli. Uh, but eventually, we create a bronchoconstrictor response to protect ourselves, in my view. That's a naturalistic view of this phenomenon, right? That bronchoconstriction actually protects us from continuing to damage our lungs. Uh, and so, you know, we see rates of this as high as 70% in some athletic populations at the elite level where they ventilate the most at the highest rates and in the worst conditions. You know, for instance, cross-country skiers. They have the worst case scenario, right? They're out breathing cold, dry air at extraordinarily high ventilatory rates. So their rates of EIB are like off the charts, right? Literally almost everybody gets EIB. Uh, yeah. I um, I think it was Mark Bubbs um, I was talking to, and he was talking about um, upper respiratory tract infections. And But he said there was a precursor to that when you just get this little bit of an irritation. So I tend to get it when it's cold. I tend to get it when I'm in the city, on the edge of the city here, whereas if I go out to, to Lanzarote or I go um, uh, or if I go somewhere warm and away from sort of the pollution more, it, it tends to uh, it tends to clear up a bit. But he he talks about those as being precursors, these these precursors to upper respiratory tract infections. And those are the precursors to, um, you know, more noxious things like colds and flu and that sort of stuff. Um, is this something that we can minimize through um, a better application of nose breathing then? So if you go back into the 80s, uh, three different studies were done, experimental studies, by the way, cause and effect studies, addressing the idea of whether if you took an existing asthmatic, somebody who has a wide variety of things that trigger bronchoconstriction or a constriction of the bronchi, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was demonstrated that at whatever work capacity they could achieve breathing nasally, which is typically a very moderate work capacity, that they would get bronchoconstriction when they breathed orally post-exercise, uh, but they wouldn't get that same constriction or it would be greatly lessened if they breathed nasally. Now, at the time, they could only do so much work, right? They weren't adapted to breathing nasally. Uh, so, you know, we've known definitively since the 80s, and I could speak to this anecdotally as well, that literally even in the most severe forms of bronchoconstriction, that any work that you can do nasally, that bronchoconstriction pretty much goes away, right? It's, it doesn't happen. Uh, we did a, a study with a, a, a triathlete, well-trained, you might be able to guess who that was, um, who had existing EIB. And what we were able to demonstrate is not only could this athlete achieve the same VO2 max and peak work uh, and high rate economic work, uh, breathing or nasally is orally, but that their uh, post FEV1 response, their ability to force air through the lung wasn't diminished after breathing nasally in the way that it was after breathing orally. That, that's the basic way we assess CIB, right? We, 
You measure how much air you can force out of your lung rapidly before and after exercise. After exercise, if that value drops quite a bit, you know, 20% is the normal standard uh, for saying you have EAB, that suggests your bronchi are under constriction. And that, that lasts a bit even after you exercise. In exercise, I would say, you know, on a practical level, I think I don't remember experiencing that sensation. And I'm not familiar with the physician you're talking about. But um, I would say the most noticeable thing or the warning sign is that post-exercise, you have to cough a lot or at all, really. Right. If you're breathing nasally, you, you don't have to cough at all after you, even after you do hard sessions, once you're adapted to breathing nasally. Um, uh, but after, um, you know, oral breathing sessions, if you're coughing, that's coughing is your basic mechanism to remove damaged materials from the lung. So that's a warning to you that you're probably damaging your lung by how you were breathing and what you just did. Over time, you'll experience wheezing. This is how I became really apparent because coughing was considered normal. It's still by most people just considered normal. That, that should always happen, right? That you weren't working hard enough unless you cough. Uh, I started experiencing wheezing, which is actual bronchoconstriction, then resulting in that very characteristic change in the noise of breathing. Um, and I won't replicate wheezing here unless you want me to. <laughs> uh, but it's very apparent, right? Like I'm watching this great cross-country skier we have, Jeff, Jesse Diggins, watching her win the Tour de, Tour de Ski last year, which is sort of like the Tour de France of cross-country skiing final, you know, the final stage is this big up, uphill climb. You know, they got in really close to the microphones because of the COVID. For some reason, they were, you could hear her breathing. She very clearly has EIB, right? I mean, she's wheezing substantially and then collapses completely afterwards and breathing completely orally. Uh, you know, so it becomes apparent that way. And then at some point, um, you start to be limited, right? You can't actually perform as well because mm -hmm. you simply have this sensation of not being able to breathe enough. I, I had that for years and years in triathlon during the running. I would never experience on the bike, but during, during running. So we've talked a lot of theory here, George, and I guess um, the listeners are going to be thinking, well, that's all very well in theory, but how does it work in the real world? So um, to finish off with, I'm going to ask you for some tips on how the listeners can get into nose breathing if they want to try it and the process and how long they should expect it to take. But before we get to that point, um, in your book, you mentioned having worked with a couple of high-level triathletes that I'm familiar with. Um, I'll let you share their names if you wish. But um, what sort of applications have you had with participating triathletes, either at the elite level or at um, recreation level? And what sort of success stories have you had? And how often, you know, is this re replicated across all of them? So uh, somewhere probably around... I've been coached with Hunter Kemper, probably is well known, most well known to you. Uh, coached him for a long, long time, three Olympic Games. Um, from the time he emerged out of the juniors, really, until, um, I don't know, 2008 or something, 2009, something like that. So, somewhere around there in 2005, I adapted nasal breathing. At some point, I, I visited that with Hunter, right? Do you want to, you know, he did occasionally have upper respiratory infection. He, he was definitely not one of those athletes that his whole career had been plagued by that, but he, you know, there were times when he was sick and it would have been better if that had not happened. Uh, and he just looked at me and thought, you know, you're nuts. And, you know, it was that Dick Jokum's thing, right? I've been successful this way. I'm not changing that now. Uh, and, I, you know, one of the things that has to happen when you're an elite coach is you have to maintain your credibility with the athletes you coach. If if you diminish that by introducing things that, that are crazy, right, then that relationship breaks down. So I didn't press that issue with him at all. I don't know that he would even remember me talking about that. He might. Uh, and the same with Amanda Stevens. She was another elite athlete I coached for years, who was a physician, by the way, 
you know, she tried it at least. Uh, we went out to do this run where normally what would happen is we'd chat, talk about what the objectives were. She was a way faster runner. She'd go run and then we'd chat again afterward. Uh, you know, she tried to do nasal breathing, experienced the air hunger, tried to run, you know, pretty much at normal pace. Uh, like I'm never doing this again. And, you know, same thing, too much to lose. Not, not going to try some whacked out idea where your only evidence is your personal experience. But I also have a lot of students and other people who I influence who sort of took me, you know, as some of your listeners might, is that dude is a scientist, that dude's been doing this all of his life. Maybe I should just listen to him and try this. Uh, who did it and then adapted successfully and then experienced the same kinds of things that I did. And probably a total of six to 12 people total. And many of those people got in our study, right? They were the, they were how we were able to do this study with adaptive nasal breathers. So a couple of quick conclusions from that. The first one is, you know, you have to recognize that you're going to need to slow down and find the level where you can do this without air hunger. And right away, that will stop some people. Um, some people just won't do that, right? Um, they're like, okay, even a short-term loss, There's uh, when I don't know what the end result will be. Here's the thing. We now know what the end result will be, right? It's no longer a question in my mind because I've experienced it. It's a thing now with experimental work showing us that, you know, you'll adapt successfully, right? It just takes variable time, anywhere from maybe five or six weeks to maybe as much as a year, depending on how you strategize, how you do this and how chemo sensitive you are and how much you have to develop your, your ventilatory musculature musculature, because you change the pattern of ventilation. You tend to, to, to go back to a more diaphragmic oriented way of breathing. Uh, and so hmm. in practically doing that, the, the most important idea is that you recognize that experiencing air hunger at your normal levels of work is expected that you're going to have to back that down. You have to accept that if you want to adapt to nasal breathing. But uh, I would add to that, that if you do it uh, significantly, go through an adaptive process, you'll return to your previous ability. You may even exceed your previous ability. That part is somewhat of an open question. We just have evidence suggesting that that's possible. We have no definitive evidence showing us that performance will be better. Just a suggestion and some anecdotal examples, the suggestion in the science that you're more economic. Uh, as a result of nasal breathing. I, I, I think that that's probably true, but I can't say that as a scientist definitively until we have you know a definitive study where we show that somebody ran 10 kilometers faster or did something else better definitively. Um, so just, that's just, the big thing. Just slow to question. Not to slow it down. Just a question in there before you move on to some of the other things. Um, you know, particularly in Ironman, uh, as you know, it's it's not necessarily about being a faster runner. It's making sure you slow down as little as possible. And that is the big problem for most age group athletes in the latter half of the run is that they just fail to maintain that pace, which isn't a fast pace, but still they're dropping off. So if if as we go back to that earlier part of the conversation where you were talking about conserving energy, you can maintain your pace for longer, then that in itself is a win for me because your your actual finishing time will be improved. Even though your running pace is not improved, the finishing time will be improved. And that is what we're all after in the long distances. So that whole idea of using nasal breathing that you alluded to, uh, Phil Maffetone, uh, Andy Potts is an occasional friend of mine. He trains in the same facility. You know that he was a main rival of Hunter, so we never interacted much when when mm. that was going on. But you know now I see him occasionally. I love to talk to him, and 
he'll he'll tolerate listening to the old man occasionally because he's a very he's a good person, right? I know. So Andy, one of the things yeah. Andy has talked about, I don't know that he still does this. I, I, I remember laughing about it when I read it in an interview. Was that he would breathe nasally in the beginning? You know, when he moved to the longer distance racing, he would breathe nasally over the first say 10k of of a half Ironman to to keep his pace down. Mm-hmm. So we have this prevailing idea that nasal breathing is a way to do that. And in somebody who is currently already fit and breathes orally, you will. Uh, create a governor on your ability to perform. But here's here's the point I'd like to emphasize. That's not because inherently nasal breathing limits your ability to perform. It's because as you adapt, you'll regain your ability to perform at all levels. And eventually, you'd be, you know, you could use nasal breathing at all levels of intensity as, as I do when I train, right? I train at all levels of intensity. I still do that, you know, anywhere from say 400 meter power output down to in running, you know, to, to long runs. Uh, and nasal breathing doesn't limit me in any of those situations because I'm adapted to nasal breathing. So initially, you know, uh, one way to think about nasal breathing is that you're going to have to slow and that might allow you to stay in that aerobic threshold pace. But the whole objective in my mind is ultimately to adapt, to be able to do that at all intensities. And our research would suggest that that's possible, right? That someone can adequately oxygenate themselves and in fact, more economically oxygenate themselves at all levels of intensity, assuming no significant or major anatomical limitations. There are people with, you know, septums that are deviated and or overgrown terminates that, you know, so impair nasal flow that they might never achieve that uh, without maybe surgery to facilitate the process. But um, I, one athlete I'm pretty familiar with going through that kind of process right now. Um, but in general, in the human population, I, I, it's my view that all of us can achieve this if we're willing to go through an adaptive process. Sorry to keep going just for a second. Exercise is in and of itself an adaptive process. All we're suggesting is the same thing, right? Yeah, I was just going to ask. I, I broke my nose playing rugby a few years ago, so I think that my septum is slightly deviated on one side. It's sort of more open on one side, more restricted on the other. Um, but it's it's not hugely so. Uh, so. But I, that was a question is, will, will somebody who's had some sort of mishap or birth defect or whatever find it more difficult to adapt to nose breathing? So once you dismiss the idea that the total amount of ventilation is the primary limiter to your ability to support and oxygenate your muscles with breathing, um, uh, chances are, unless you have really, really severe restrictions in your nasal passage that you can still achieve a very high level of work, you know, I could never say definitively exactly what you'll be able to do with a deviated symptom, but chances are you could still achieve a very high level of work. Certainly you could probably achieve what you need to do to be successful in the Ironman, essentially aerobic threshold work for a long, long period of time. Okay. So I'm, I'm writing these down now, these, these steps. So number one, um, except that there's going to be some air hunger. Um, which will mean that you're probably going to have to slow down to start with to um, accomplish your training. Um, Let me maybe- suggest a strategy for that. Okay. Um, most people train on occasion now in triathlon indoors, right? Because of winter or because they found that that creates a more controlled environment. So if you do ever do that, right? If you ever run on a treadmill or ride indoors on a comp trainer or some other indoor mm-hmm. device, you know, it provides a perfect opportunity to evaluate where you are now, just start at some ridiculously low power output, breathing nasally, a ridiculously low speed, way slower than you ever do, and then do what we call a graded warm-up. Really, it's analogous to a graded exercise test. Just increase that in stages and note 
how much air hunger you feel. There's a really simple scale you can find on the internet, you know, one to seven. Seven would be like you're being held underwater and you can't breathe. One would be just normal breathing, whether you're exercising or not. It's not an effort scale. And note where you first start to sense nasal breathing and use that as feedback about what the intensity is to start with, mm-hmm. right? So if I start to feel this at say a 10 minute pace, you know, I want to stay around or just below that where I first start to sense it, not where it becomes severe. You'll be able to go much faster and, and deal with severe air hunger if you have a strong mind for that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, you don't want to do that. You want to just find that first level mm-hmm. and then come back and re-examine that every once in a while, right? Every two weeks or even every week if you want. Uh, and then you'll see that it starts to move up, right? The pace where you don't, where you feel that air hunger starts to move up. And if you use that sort of systematic approach initially to adapting, that can help a lot. Yeah, I would echo that actually i've been using it on the compu trainer actually um and found that the i i look at my average watts or my my normalized power across the same circuit and see what i can hold comfortably those breathing and then over time i can see that i'm and i cover the watts up so i'm not i'm not being guided by the watts i'm being guided by my breathing and just that that air hunger and i've noticed that it's creeping up slowly um it's probably you know, 60, 65% of my FTP at the moment, but it's going up and it's going in the right direction and I'm comfortably able to sit there now. And and, and as you've said, it, it is a habitual thing as well to breathe through the mouth while you're exercising. And if you're mindful of that and you force yourself to close your mouth again, you find that you are, I've certainly found that I don't need to breathe through my mouth to continue exercising at that level. I can also tell if I'm riding up an incline, you know, and I'm pushing to 200, 220 watts, which is about my aerobic threshold. Then I can feel that air hunger developing over a over a couple of minutes, and I have to uh, have to sort of back off a little bit. But yeah, you um, mentioned something that goes to a second strategy. This is a behavioral thing, right? Operantly, operant behavior refers to the idea that this behavior is unconscious to you, right? You know, that you essentially control unconsciously things that just happen because they you just do that, right? Like how you drive. You're, you're looking at the traffic, but you're not thinking about what you're doing when you drive. So, uh, you know, create uh, to deal with breathing. Breathing is an operant behavior. We tend not to be too conscious of it. To create nasal breathing conditions, there's two really easy strategies. One is just put some tape over your mouth. That strategy is problematic for most people uh, because, you know, that will attract attention, right? If you're in gyms or out places, you know, somebody's going to come up and want to interrupt you and say, why do you have that tape? Uh, uh, and the second strategy, uh, which is the, the, the long-held cultural strategy of Native Americans and Native populations in other parts of the world, I believe, as well, is just put a little water in your mouth. So when you have water in your mouth, you'll keep your mouth sealed, right? Mm. Uh, and then you'll just naturally breathe nasally, not have to think about it. And then when you have to talk to somebody, you can just swallow the water. It is, uh, a lot of the people I know, because I train in gym some, you know, they, they, they always know that I'll have this initial, like, and then I'll swallow the water and say something to them. And then you can just put a little more water in there. And it works remarkably well. You you refer at in the opening of your book to um, the Tara Humara, but you, you, is it the Raramuri? Is that what their name is um, locally? Uh, the Raramuri is the, uh, the, the truer name. Uh, the Tara yeah. Mara is an anglicized name. But, and it's kind of, you know, like all anglicized names for, for uh, indigenous peoples, it's vaguely defamatory. So uh, I... I do recall reading somewhere, and I wonder if it was that book about somebody running with water in the mouth. Um, you know, so, uh, uh, so there's a guy by the name of George Caitlin. I have not read his full book, but he, he did this in the middle 1800s. Uh, he went and, you know, lived with a wide variety of tribes in both, uh, uh, uh North, well, in all parts of North America, both in the U S and I think up into Canada. Uh, and you know, one of the universal things he, he, he 
found was that they all really focused heavily on the idea of breathing nasally as being important. So in the Apache, who I'm particularly interested in, because the Apache tend to be localized more in the Southwest, Southwestern tribes. And I'm, I'm, you know, became interested in Native American culture a lot in the, in the 80s. So I work with a tribe that's on often uh, on healthcare stuff. Uh, you know, one of the things I remember reading about, and it's called Indian Running. It's a book written by Peter Navikoff, I think uh, 30, mm-hmm. 40 years ago. He talks about the, the Apache in the book using the practice of putting water in the mouth to train their youth. So Apache were, you know, uh, I guess you can argue around this, this interpretation, but more, a more aggressive tribe uh, and known for really having um, an influence uh, or, a, or a strong uh, influence to want to train their, their young people to be warriors. So, you know, the strategy would be put water in your mouth, run to some place, come back, and then spit the water out to show me that you've i think that's that's probably where that's probably the example i have heard of because it was um it was some sort of initiation test wasn't it see if they could keep the water in the mouth yes yeah okay any more on the um any more on the strategy for uh, getting hold of this george or once we've instigated these is it just a matter of patience and practice it is a matter of patience of gradually expanding it over time um, dilators can help initially right particularly external non-hugely invasive dilators Usually invasive dilators can essentially, so I have a thing here uh, called the Alaxolito. They, they had done some research. I got interested in communicating with the, the guy who sort of formulated this idea. This, this is a stent that goes all the way back through both oh. nasal mouths. I mean, you can essentially, with an invasive enough dilator, get right back to probably your maximum level of work right away. Um, invasive dilators have other potential problems, so they might be more difficult for you to actually insert. They're more expensive. Uh, this thing probably costs several hundred dollars. Um, I've, I've, I've struggled with it. I can't really insert it properly, right? Because it just stimulates like a, a reaction and when I can't get it to go all the way in. Mm-hmm. Um, I may be very typical, though. I don't know what's typical for people. They do widely use it and sell it. So, and they use it surgically. Um, all the way to the, the nasal strip or the internal kind of ring device. Um, what's the one I use? It's called the, called the turbo, the turbine. You've probably read about that because um, Froome was using well, this. Well, that's I'm um, um, just checking that on Google as we speak. Chris Froome nasal breathing. There was the Rhino Med one, which was diet, which was invented by an Australian triathlete. I don't recall his name. Right. Um, I, I met him a couple of times out in Hawaii, and he was sort of um, showing this around to all of the booths and seeing if anybody was interested in trying it. It's a yellow one that went inside the nostrils, wasn't it? And, right. Yeah. So whether you do it internally or externally, what that does is open up the the, the first valve, right? The, the first aperture that's really narrow that mm-hmm. allows you to increase flow, maybe you know 15 or 20 percent. And that can help right away with air hunger, letting you do a little bit more work, you know, if you're really impatient and or it helps with the whole mucus thing, right? When you're producing a lot of mucus in abundance at first, trying to adapt to this, that makes it more possible for that mucus not to overwhelm your nasal passage. So, you know, I can suggest those there. You don't have to use them, but they can be helpful, especially early on. And then later, they might be a thing that you use for, say, hard training or racing. That's typically how I use them. And they're they're unlikely to influence the overall filtering capacity of the nose. What I worry about with the more invasive dilators that go all the way in that are essentially medical devices is, is whether they're impacting the reason that you're breathing nasally so that you can get this improved air conditioning, et cetera. So... Um, and there's no definitive work on that. Don't really know. You you mentioned when you were talking about the process of nasal breathing and how the nasal the, the filters sort of help to protect us against viruses. 
Is there any evidence to show that um, breathing orally um, makes you more at risk of uh, catching COVID and less at risk if you breathe nasally? So here's the problem with studying breathing orally and nasally, right? We switch back and forth and use various patterns. It's almost impossible to really characterize somebody. So what we're left with is, is, is characterizing what's called dysfunctional breathing, right? People who habitually breathe orally, nasally. And there's, again, not a huge amount of research, but the research that's looked at whether dysfunctional breathing relates to various disease patterns tends to sh show higher rates of disease in people who are clearly dysfunctional in their breathing. Um, the other thing we can look at is it, it's very clear that people who um, are exercising outdoors in polluted environments are exposed to higher rates of, uh, of contaminants, not necessarily pathogens, but uh, biological pathogens, but particulate matter, smoke, et cetera. And there is also a limited amount of evidence. It's very minimal. It's just really not been studied very much, showing us that the nasal passage will reduce our uptake of you know, various things like the one fairly good study looks at sulfur dioxide, which is an outcome of you know, car exhaust, pre-omnipresent in most modern society. And it shows us that when we breathe uh, 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 orally, our, we increase the uptake of sulfur dioxide, resulting in a greater likelihood of bronchoconstriction, right? It's actually a study examining nasal and oral breathing using sulfur dioxide to stimulate the bronchoconstriction. So we don't have, we just don't have great evidence. The evidence that we have suggests these things are the case. You know, one of the things I would hope to achieve, because I am a scientist, is not just to try to influence the general practitioner to accept this on faith. Uh, from what I'm saying, but to get the other people like myself to start investigating this, Pat Patrick makes this point. He's exactly right. It's it's like amazing that in my field that we haven't studied this more, that we haven't really even considered it. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of areas where we think the answer might be, you know, we have a theoretical idea or hypothesis, but we don't know the definitive answer because we just haven't done any work looking at it. So we've talked about Phil Maffetone a couple of times. I can recall reading Phil Maffetone's book back in the 80s, around the time he'd started working with Mark Allen, called Everyone's an Athlete, and reading about his ideas about exercising, about using this math-related, you know, maximum aerobic function and 180 minus your age as your limiting heart rate for exercise. And thinking at the time, this guy's a lunatic, and I'm never going to get fit training like this i don't care if mark allen can you know struggles and he can do it. he's a world champion already but i'm never going to get any fitter and um reading the book um you know and then dismissing it and i i did admit this to him when we when we did the podcast i was embarrassed to admit it but i felt i had to um then when i read primal endurance with brad kearns and mark sisson and they were talking about maffetone and they were talking about this sort of no pain no gain and the propensity to sort of just do all this sort of smash it type training i started to get more interesting and over the last few years, Maffetone's stock amongst the public has risen like that, you know, from a from from a lone voice trying to make himself heard amongst people who are saying that's rubbish to somebody who now actually um, is at the forefront of this sort of, whether it's a new movement or just old science being rehashed. And it feels to me like what you and, and um, James Nestor and Patrick are doing with promoting breathing is that you, at the moment, you're somewhat of a lone voice out there against trying to shout and push against the tide. But if we keep talking about it enough, people will cotton onto the fact that you guys have really got something and there's a, it's, it's a game changer. That's what I hope. So, so when Nicholas first came to this country and he got involved with us when I was the national team coach really early, he'd only been here about three or four years. 
you know, when he would do presentations, people would scream at him, right? They'd get pissed. They'd cuss at him and tell him he was insane. Yep. And they still do that on the internet. People still like attack what he's saying, right? Even though virtually everybody uses the basic tenets of his model now to teach running, right? Mm-hmm. Including in the clinical side. So it took a long time for that. It's still not universal. You know, it's probably been 20, 25 years in this country to try to change how people think about it. You know, this is the same. Uh, you know, I have people who they don't, they don't talk to me in the way that people talk to Nicholas because Nicholas would go out and do clinics and things like that. I don't do any of that really. I, I occasionally I'll do a presentation, et cetera. But, um, uh, you know, most people who talk to me, talk to me respectfully, but still, you know, I mean, that's, that's a thing that happens. I, I remember being really irritated because I listened to this podcast uh, talking about my research with no idea. And then they talked to one of the, one of the foremost guys, uh, in uh, uh, pharyngeal uh, EIB, right, uh, a, a physician over there in England, James Hull, and he's written a lot of definitive papers uh, around the topic. And they sort of ambushed him and said, you know, what do you think about this research? He had never read it. He'd never seen it. It was basically, can somebody perform maximum work breathing nasally? And he said, logically, no, because no, you can't. You have to adapt to it, right? Uh, uh, you know, science is is involved sometimes, right? So, um, uh that is an important idea, right? That things take time and mm-hmm. it requires you to come to understand what, what's actually being said and what's being talked about. Uh, you know, I allude to this a bit in the book as well. One of the problems when people have experienced big changes from something is they uh, become proselytizers, right? It almost becomes religion to them. And oftentimes will overstate uh, and maybe inaccurately reflect. And there's a certain amount of that going on right now that people are overstating the value of this because they've experienced something hugely beneficial themselves. Mm-hmm. So I hope to be a bit of a countering influence to say, you know, this is what the science suggests is really happening. This is the limitations of it because then we might actually adopt something that's powerful. It is natural when you need more air than you currently can provide, right? Like in an emergency to open your mouth and breathe. Right. And it's natural in that our, our uh, physiological response system sets us up to do that. Uh, is it natural to have to do that when you exercise? Well, that's debatable because exercise isn't natural, right? Exercise is artificial. You know, think about what you did this morning. You went and ran on a treadmill and you didn't go anywhere. Or, or you went and ran around in a big circle and got back to the same place. There was no point in that except for to create some physical activity, right? Mm. Uh, and that's an artificial idea that we've created to overcome the problem of not having to actually do much to survive anymore. Uh, and so, you know, the idea that that we might, experiment with changing our breathing in a way that better adapts to that artificial nature of exercise to better protect ourselves and that we could then adapt to doing that. That's not a crazy idea. That's actually really, you know, the logical idea, right? Let's look at this. If we can adapt to breathing nasally, I mean, the up, it's almost all upside. There's literally no downside to doing this. I feel like I'm similar to you, George, in that not from a scientific point of view, but my curiosity with things, almost like a self-quantifier. And I like to try things and find out myself, you know, because sometimes you can wait forever to the research to, for the research to prove one thing or another. But even so, in any in any research where you've got a consensus, you know, the bell curve, there are outliers who um, absolutely fly on this particular method, and there are those who don't respond at all. So what what's to say that you aren't the one person who's going to be the um, big responder to something out there so you know it's an experiment for me exercise is a lifelong thing it's a part of me being healthy 
Um, I'm not trying to get faster next year. I'm just trying to keep going and being healthy and being able so I can still do these things when I'm 65 and 75. And so I'm willing to try these things and I'm willing to invest a bit of time. And if I have to get a bit slower, then, you know, to do that, then that's that's part of the cost, um, uh, the initial investment in order to to reap the benefits like with anything. Um, and, and I hope for the listeners, you, you, you know, you may be listening to me and George come uh, chat about this subject now and think this is another assignment sort of um, goofy little things that he wants to try out. But honestly, you know, what I would say is try it for yourself before you scoff at this idea in the same way that I was at seminars with Nick Romanoff and Graham Fletcher where people were the exact same people in the UK standing up and shouting and calling him a heretic and saying, you can't run like this. This is ridiculous. Um, and I'm sure some of those people have had their heads turned now and the ones that haven't are probably stuck in their old ways, having never got anywhere. Um, so try this out. Give it a go. Please don't just criticize it. Um, because you think it's a silly idea because that's the worst thing you can do. And there's been some things that I've tried out and I've, and I've shared them on my podcasts and, you know, they haven't worked, but at least I tried them. And now I can speak from a point of experience. Whereas if, if you can only speak from hearing somebody else scoff at something, then that's not really a very strong position anyway. No, that's true. I, you know, and, you know, in science, we talk about the idea of induction and deduction. And, you know, if, if something is true in yourself, good. It's true for yourself. It may not be true for other people. That's why we proceed to start to examine it more and more people. That's what we're doing here. You know, I initially experienced it myself. I experienced it anecdotally in other people who were individually willing to try it. And then we moved to a group study. We just needed to keep doing more of that, right? And validate the idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes when you do that process, you find, and in fact, you were atypical, but actually commonly, you know, there's no really reason you or I are a lot different than anyone else. No. Probably we won't find that. Probably what we'll find is that most people can do this and and uh, experience the benefits that you're talking about. That, again, I can I can suggest that there's potentially a small performance benefit here. You know, that's why somebody like David Radisha, you know, might have persisted in doing that throughout his career. Uh, but the bigger benefit, the far bigger benefit is that, you know, we all hope to be able to do this all of our lives, whether we're doing triathlon or not just to be outside, to be physically active, et cetera. And, you know, uh, breathing is one of those areas that can inhibit us from doing this, both at a very obvious level through lung function, but also in cardiovascular function, something we didn't talk about. But Well, you know, breathing, sleep's another thing that I've been talking with people a lot about over the last couple of years. And the, the common response when I get, when I talk to people about the sleep is, well, you know, I go to bed every night and I wake up. And so I must be doing pretty well at that. Right. Um, it, it wasn't until I started tracking my sleep with the whoop that I, learned some interesting things that have have caused me to change my behaviors um and you know again it's that mindfulness isn't it mindfulness and open-mindedness and willing to give something a go and see what happens for yourself um by the way the nasal breathing thing has a big impact on sleep you know apnea is very directly related to this and um a very simple method um i just talked i talked to somebody about this almost every day it seems now you know try some tape if initially that's fearful for you, try it just sitting, right? Watching television, reading a book, see if you can sit with tape on your mouth and feel comfortable. Uh, And then if you get through that exposure to a level of realization that you actually can breathe that way, you know, try this. And then, you you know, use something like your, your whoop to measure the outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't find when I started doing that, which I've only taken that up in the last year, but it's it's been about a year now. I didn't find, um, uh, you know, I wasn't measuring anything like my pulse ox, my O2 sats, et cetera. Uh, what I mainly, I didn't find that I slept longer. What I mainly found is that I stopped turning in my sleep so much. 
um, and I was getting a better quality of sleep. I'm actually sleeping maybe a little less now as a result of, you know, I do this every night now, a little bit of tape. Yeah. And I've also found that I don't wake up with a dry mouth anymore. Yes. So yeah, that's a very obvious, that's a, such yeah. an obvious, yeah. clear indication of a problem if you're waking up with a dry mouth. Yeah. So, glad you brought that up. Well, George, it's been fantastic. Um, where can people go to find out more about you and more about nasal breathing? So um, basically, it's published science. There's a review paper. That's what I'd actually suggest most people read. Uh, there's the original experimental study, the case study that we did. Um, I have a website that's really just a way to link there. Probably the easiest way is just to use my last name. It's an unusual name, D-A-L-L-A-M. Go to Google Scholar, right? And then uh, maybe use nasal and you'll find this research. Um, let's see. Uh, well, what, what we can do, George, is I'll get you maybe to share some of those um, papers and documents and then we can put the links to them in the show notes, save people a bit absolutely. of uh, manual labor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a full-timer professor, right? Like once I go back, you know, I have a long, long day. But, you know, if you if someone emails me, which happens more frequently, you might imagine people emailing me with questions about research that we've done or stuff we've published. Yeah. Um, I always try to respond to that if I can. So, you know, my email is freely available on the internet because I'm a university professor. You can find me and find my email very easily. Okay. Um, you made you made um, reference to a book. We actually are building a, a, we've got a PDF document running. I think we've got about a hundred books now that have been recommended by guests. You mentioned the one there, Indian running. I think I'd like, I'd like to add that one to the list because I don't think we've had that before. And, um, we did have a guest on um, last year who was on a running journey around and had spent some time running with the Navajo Indians. Um, he'd done a documentary on the Street Chinmoy um, thousand mile yes, race in New York, and um, he uh, he talks about running with Indians. So that that book for those people who are also interest, interested in um, hunter gatherer and ancestral health and all of that sort of stuff, understanding about how people used to move for move for their daily you know, not exercise, but hunter, hunt, hunting and gathering and just going about right. their daily life and traveling from one place to another is quite interesting as well. Right, right. Um, you know, one of the suggestions that we used to do this a lot more is, again, you do see it in some indigenous populations is kind of culture, uh, but also, you know, change in our anatomy over time, we were evolving smaller and smaller nasal apertures, right, and, and mm -hmm. nasal passages in general, which would suggest that we're moving to a more oral, oral breathing dominated approach, um, which isn't good, right? That's a bad thing. So. Patrick Patrick talked about that a lot in his in our podcast as well about how certain facial structures um are better for um in in breathing and for activity you know the africans with the um wider nostrils and the wider nasal passages and wider cheekbones tend to have a better sort of oxygen transport system in the in the head so an interesting feature of that is while it's true that they can achieve higher ventilations there's one study that would suggest that, that and you know it's a race based study so I don't really like to reference it that much, but it, essentially what it's saying is with that wider passage, you might reduce filtering efficiency a little bit, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, not hugely, uh, you know, so there's a pro and con to everything, right? When we increase, if we artificially increase our ventilatory capacity, we might take a little bit away of the function of the nasal cavity. And we, you know, one of the principal reasons you would want to do this is to preserve that function, to, to employ mm -hmm. that function because the the uh, I'll call it the downstream implications. That's not just the lung, right? Ultimately, our cardiovascular system is probably affected. Um, uh, uh, some re some of your rears, if they're endurance athletes for a long time, may be aware that we've had this emerging research over the last decade or so, 
showing higher rates of atrial fibrillation and higher myocardial myocardial scarring in long-term athletes, people like you and I, mm-hmm. uh, who've done endurance work and done it for long, long periods of time. And, you know, this creates fear in, in people. Um, there's not a higher rate of mortality associated with it in comparison to people who train more moderately. And some studies, depending on how the study was conducted, might even show some favorable mortality, mm-hmm. even in those people who have, in theory, these myocardial scarring uh, issues. Um, you know, scarring is caused by ischemia. There's really no other mechanism that we know, right? Some uh, imbalance between blood flow and the myocardium and the heart. Uh, one of the things we understand is that when we hypoventilate slightly as we do nasal breathing, right, that we're probably improve, improving localized blood flow. Uh-huh. It, you know, maybe the reason we're seeing this is simply because we're breathing orally, right? Don't know that definitively. There's lots of experimental science that suggests that should be looked at, right? That's That's where we're at with that idea. That's certainly one of the things I worry about the most, having done this for so long. And also because I still like to train, you know, at different intensities and compete, right? I'm not just, mm-hmm. I haven't settled into the into the pattern. I just like to exercise. I still like the competition side as well. Uh, I worry about that concept. So I feel like at this point in my life that, uh, you know, the nasal breathing has potentially protected me, um, but not definitive yet. Well, George has been fantastic. I have achieved my ambition of understanding more about nasal breathing. So thank you for educating me. And hopefully um, some of the listeners will feel a bit better educated about this and be willing to give it a try now. So it's been a great place to have you on the show. Well, uh, Simon, it's been my pleasure to speak with you as well. And, uh, you know, hopefully to be able to perpetuate the the idea we should think about this and even consider doing this. So Great. George, listeners, thanks for being here. We'll see you again next week. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you again to George for being on this week's show. There are links to all of our discussion points in the show notes below. So that's all for this week. I really do appreciate you listening to the High Performance Human podcast each week. You can join the conversation today by subscribing for free on iTunes so you never miss an episode. And please think about joining our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page. I'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But remember that being a high-performance human is a journey, so do your best to stay healthy, stay focused, and keep trying to be just a little bit better than yesterday.